Well, at the very heart of Christianity is the person of Jesus. And it can be rightfully said, without Jesus, there is no such thing as Christianity. But standing behind Jesus is this gaping, wide-open tomb. And we can equally say that without the empty tomb of Jesus, there would be no such thing as Christianity. In fact, the early Christians went around proclaiming the fact that they had seen Jesus risen from the dead. And everywhere they pressed upon people these three truths, that there was an execution, there was an empty tomb, and there were eyewitnesses who had seen Jesus come back from the dead. These are the three just irreducible facts of what happened some 2,000 years ago. And so they went proclaiming this everywhere they went. There's a fellow named John Dixon. He's a professor of ancient history in Macquarie University. He's also a visiting professor of classics and Oxford, and he's written a book called The Christ Files, and the subtitle is How Historians Know What They Know About Jesus. And he said this, the New Testament revolves around a series of events said to have occurred in Palestine between 5 BC and AD 30. This makes Christianity open. Some would say vulnerable. The logic is simple. If you claim that something spectacular took place in history, intelligent people are going to ask you historical questions. On the whole, Christianity has welcomed this. It is as if the Christian faith places its head on the chopping block of public scrutiny and invites us all to take a swing. You see, Christianity isn't so much a philosophy. And it's not so much a worldview, although it gives us a philosophy and a worldview. Christianity is rooted in historical facts that happened about Jesus. And if Jesus did not rise again from the dead, there is no such thing as Christianity. In fact, we would never have heard of Jesus if he was still buried in a Roman tomb. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to look at the words of the Apostle Paul. As I mentioned a while ago, he was one of these enemies of Jesus in his early movement. He may have been part of the group of Pharisees who were there conspiring to put Jesus to death. He certainly was one of the major players in the wake of the resurrection and all these Christians going around proclaiming they had seen Jesus from the dead. He was, he was arresting them. He actually oversaw the first killing of a Christian. And he continued on that road until he met the resurrected Jesus and his life was turned upside down. Jesus had forgiveness upon him and commissioned him to be his ambassador to the Roman Empire. And so we're going to see Paul standing up in Athens, this intellectual center of the ancient world. And he's proclaiming the message, and he's inviting public scrutiny. And in a sense, he's inviting everyone to take a swing and to see if these things aren't true. So as we get ready to look at this passage in detail, would you pray with me and ask the Lord to open our hearts and our minds to receive the things he wants us to learn this day? Let's pray. Father, as we gather around um, this, this place today, we come from all different kinds of backgrounds and places, some of us strong in faith, some of us uh, wavering in our faith, some of us wondering if we could even have faith in these events. Would you meet us wherever we are? Would you help us to understand the centrality of this empty tomb some 2,000 years ago that turned the world upside down? Help us understand what Paul is saying and communicating and and apply that to our own lives as well. And so we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're told that Paul was waiting for some of his friends in Athens. And as I mentioned a while ago, Athens was one of the historical 
intellectual centers of the ancient world. This is the place where people like Socrates and Plato and Aristotle hung out. And uh, as the passage told us a while ago, the Athenians just loved to sit around and talk about whatever was new. And so he's in this intellectual center. And we're told that as he was walking around this city, that his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. This is an interesting statement. Here Paul is an ambassador of Jesus. He wants more than anything for people to come to know Jesus, to put their trust in him, to receive the forgiveness of sins, to have their lives renewed by grace. And he's walking around this city, and he sees that this city is full of idols. And so we have this curious mixture of intellectual rigor happening in Athens, as well as a place that is very religious. Some might even say superstitious. In fact, this city was so full of idols, you would walk around and you would see, for example, this 40-foot high statue of Athena. This was the place where the altar to the 12 gods was, the Temple of Mars, the Temple of Apollo, plus countless images of muses and gods of Roman and Greek mythology. Petronius, the Roman satirist, once said that it was easier to find a god in Athens than a human. Everywhere Paul looked, he saw people worshiping images of stone and wood, and he is provoked within him. You see, Paul wrote another letter called A Letter to the Romans, and he talked about how people naturally suppress what they know is true about God and then transfer what they ought to give to God, which is worship and glory and honor, to things that are just created. He says this, For he is that is God's invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. I wonder as Paul walked around this ancient city of Athens and he saw all these statues of wood and stone that people were worshiping, he didn't have these words kind of rummaging through his mind of how they traded the the worship of the one true God for the worship of anything. G.K. Chesterton (laughs) The legend once said, when we cease to worship God, we do not worship nothing. We worship anything. And so Paul is walking around. He's he's being provoked from within. Not only do these people not know about the good news of Jesus and his resurrection, but he knows that along with worshiping things that are not God, they become enslaved to them. And you know, Jesus liberates and Jesus saves. And so he's moved to action. And we're told in verse 17 that he reasoned in the synagogues with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. This was kind of Paul's modus operandi whenever he went to a new place. First of all, he would go to the local Jewish synagogue. That's because Paul himself was Jewish. These people knew the scriptures. And so he would reason with them from the scriptures, trying to show them how the scriptures point to Jesus. But we're also told that he is in the marketplace. That is where they're selling goods and fruit and all kinds of handcrafted items. And he's talking to anyone that he can find who is willing to engage him in a conversation about Jesus. And we're told in verse 18 that some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. 
And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Epicurean philosophers are those who believe that life is found in pleasure. The more you maximize pleasure, the happier you will be. And the Stoic philosophers were back basically on the opposite end of that spectrum. <laughs> the more you pursue pleasure, they said, the more you suffer. And so you had people on opposite sides of the philosophical scene in Athens talking with him. And some of them are saying, what does this babbler wish to say? That word babbler in Greek is the word for seed picker. It was used as scavenger birds. And so this is probably a slur upon Paul. Maybe they're saying something like, what does this intellectual scavenger wish to say? And so we're told others said he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching about Jesus and the resurrection. What's interesting about that phrase, if we are familiar with our ancient history, is this is the exact charge that Socrates was charged with, leading the youth astray, preaching about foreign divinities. And of course, he was sentenced to death, made to drink hemlock. And they said that he was preaching foreign divinities because he was preaching about this man named Jesus and something about the resurrection of the dead. Now, my friends, when we read the accounts of the early Christians, they did talk about how we ought to love one another. They did talk about how we ought to be kind to one another and how to do good things. But that was not the center of the message they proclaimed. What was of first importance was Jesus and the resurrection. These other things about loving others, being kind to people, doing good works, all those flow from a life centered on Jesus. But of first importance was the news about Jesus and the resurrection. In fact, Paul wrote to a group of Christians living in the ancient city of Corinth, this metropolitan town, and he said to them, For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve, then he appeared to more than 500 people at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he also appeared to me. He goes on to say, For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. And he goes on and he tells these Corinthians, something I mentioned a while ago, If Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. This is what is of first importance. If you don't get anything else right about Christianity, you have to get this point. This is the cornerstone of our faith. Back to the book of Acts. Chapter 17, verse 19. We're told that they, that is these philosophers and these people kind of slurring him, they took him and brought him to the Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new teaching is that you're presenting? For you bring strange things to our ears, and we wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. We're told that he was brought to the Areopagus. This is a picture from the Areopagus, looking at the Acropolis and the city of Athens in the background. The Areopagus was a ruling council, basically made up of retired uh, politicians and aristocrats, and they basically ran the affairs of state. And so when they were bringing him here, the same place as Socrates was tried at, 
They may not be engaging in a formal trial, but they certainly are flexing. (laughs) They certainly are trying to intimidate. They certainly are saying, put up or shut up. And so they want to know what these things mean. And so my friends, let me just say, every Christian should be prepared to explain what the resurrection of Jesus means for anyone who asks. Paul is asked this question, what do these things mean? And he has to give an answer as if his life depends on it. Then we had that little parenthetical statement in verse 21. Now all the Athenians and foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. This could probably be described about any university town where people sit around and hear new ideas and debate ideas of philosophy and right and wrong and morality. But that's what people in Athens did. And so Paul is here talking to some of the most uh, powerful and intellectual people about the resurrection of Jesus. And so we're told in verse 22, so Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I also found an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. Now, it's interesting. Commentators are kind of divided with whether or not this phrase, I perceive that you are in every way religious, is a compliment or (laughs) a bit sarcastic. Uh, Whatever the case may be, Paul says, look, I've been walking around your city looking at all these things you worship, and I came across this altar, and it says on this altar, to the unknown God. Isn't that interesting? These people who are very religious, some people might say superstitious, are worshiping anything and everything, and they even have an altar to worship an unknown god. The backstory, real fast to this, was about 550 BC, there was a plague that swept through Athens, and it was devastating. And people were praying to every and any god in the Parthenon of of gods in, in Rome, and nothing happened. And so they thought there must be some being, some entity out there that we are missing. And so they created this altar. And they wrote the inscription to the unknown God. And they prayed. And the plague was lifted. And so some 550 years later, Paul is walking around and this statue is still in place. And so he says in verse 23, What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. What's interesting is Paul is not going and and quoting from the Hebrew scriptures, which probably would have meant very little to these Athenian philosophers, but he's taking something that's in their culture, a truth that is being acknowledged, that there is a being out there that they don't really know much about, and he says, I'm going to proclaim this God to you. And this is what he says in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. What he's saying is you may be worshiping a million and one different things, but what I'm proclaiming to you is the creator of heaven and earth, the one who gives you gifts, the one who fills your lungs with breath. This is the God that I'm talking about. Without him, nothing exists. And he goes on and says in verse 26, he, that is this God he's proclaiming, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, 
having determined the allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. He said, this God is sovereign. He has determined not only your birth date and your death date, but he determines that you live right where you're living right now. It's an interesting description of this sovereign God. And he says, this God has arranged all of this that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. Yet actually, he is not far from each of us. Paul knows that they have suppressed the truth about the creator, that he's actually not very far from them. I remember when I was a kid, I think I shared this with some of you before, that I went to a friend's house and we would swim in his pool and we would take basketball and we would push it down underneath the water and we'd try to stand on it and you know, we'd wobble and eventually that ball would shoot up because of the, the pressure inside the, the ball. It, it would give way and just shoot through the, through the roof, through the roof, through the surface of the water. And in many ways, that's what's going on with people, Paul says. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness, but it, it pokes itself through. And he says, look, one of the th- reasons God has, has blessed you and has given you all kinds of things is so that you might trace those blessings back to God himself. He is not far from each one of us. And then he does something very curious. He quotes some of their poet philosophers. For in him we live and move and have our being, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring. Here, instead of quoting Hebrew scriptures, which probably wouldn't have meant very much to these Athenian philosophers, if if at all, he instead quotes some of their own poet philosophers. One of them was Epimenides. He lived in the mid-7th or 6th century, and he had this line, In him we live and move and have our being. And he also quotes another philosopher poet, Eratus, who lived mid-300s to 200s B.C. And he said once, We are his offspring. So what he's doing is he's he's basically saying, look, even some of your own poets and philosophers are acknowledging these truths. By the way, some of you know that I quote different poets and musicians and people living in our own day as they kind of resonate on some of the themes that we talk about. And I do that basically because Paul does this as well. He draws from the culture around them and say, look, even some of your own are saying things that are true and resonate. So there he goes from, uh, from saying that to verse 29. Being then God's offspring, as even your own poets are saying, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. If we are God's offspring, if there's a sense in which, by virtue of creation, we are children of the divine being, we're not made of gold or silver, or stone, or rocks, or wood. So we shouldn't think the divine being who made us is like that either. And then he says this in verse 30, a fascinating statement. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. As he speaks to these Athenian philosophers and others who are listening in here, he basically says, these times of ignorance in your culture, God has overlooked But now, he is commanding everyone, everywhere, to repent. There's that word, repent. It's one of those biblical words that simply means to do a complete turnabout. If you're walking this way, to repent means you turn and you walk this way. And in the context of the scriptures, it is almost always used to describe an action where we realize, by God's grace, that we are straying from him, and then we turn and we walk towards him. 
And so he says to them, God commands all people everywhere to repent. And this is the reason he gives for that. Because he has fixed the day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Paul says, you want to know what the resurrection of Jesus means? You want to know why I'm preaching about Jesus and the resurrection? Because God has appointed a day where he will judge this world and everyone in it by this resurrected man. Again, in the book of Romans, Paul acknowledges this in another way. He says, Jesus was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead. It's not simply that Jesus is powerful. Yes, he is. But he is the Son of God in power. In other words, he is now presently ruling. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords. As he says at the end of the book of Matthew, all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. And now Jesus commissions his disciples to go and make disciples of of all nations. And so what Paul is saying is essentially what J.I. Packer said in different words. Jesus stands at the end of history for every person without exception. That means that when you and I leave this world, we will stand before Jesus to give an account of our life. God has entrusted this judgment, this authority, this rulership to Jesus. So I'm going to stand before him, and you're going to stand before him. This is part of the reason why Paul says, I am proclaiming about Jesus and the resurrection. And then we're told kind of the aftermath of what happened here. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. And so Paul went out from their midst. But some men joined them and believed. Among them were Dionysius the Areopagite and a woman named Damaris and others with them. We're told here that some made fun of Paul. (laughs) You're talking about the resurrection of the dead. People don't rise from the dead. (laughs) When people die, they stay dead. And Paul, of course, would say, I know that. But there's one exception. And he's the king of kings and lord of lords. Some said to Paul, we want to hear more about this. Please keep talking to us about it. And some actually joined Paul. We're given the names of of two of them, Dionysius the Areopagite. That's probably referring to one of the rulers of that council there. And a woman named Damaris, who we don't know much about, but she must have been very significant because she's named as one of the women there who gave her life to Jesus. So let's apply this to our lives. Let me just ask you the question, where are you with this thing called the resurrection of Jesus? I shouldn't call it that thing. I should say this historical fact of Jesus. Paul went out proclaiming the resurrection of Jesus, and he was willing to die for this truth, as were the other apostles, the disciples of Jesus, these same men who who fled because they didn't want to end up crucified with Jesus. Now they've seen the resurrected Jesus, and they're like, what's the worst they can do to us? Only kill us. But if they kill us, we will rise again. So do you say that this is silly? You're not sure if you can actually embrace this central truth of Christianity. And if you're there, let me just say, I get the intellectual dissonance that you're feeling. That this is a tough thing to get our minds around. But let me ask you the question, what do you do with these eyewitnesses? 
For example, the Apostle Peter. Remember, he was the one who, when Jesus was on trial, and they pointed out that he was one of the people who was a follower of Jesus, he flat out denied it. He called curses down upon himself if he were lying. But then he goes very, back to that very place where they crucified Jesus and said to the people who crucified him, God raised this Jesus to life, and we are all witnesses of it. Or the Apostle Paul, as it says in Galatians, he who used to persecute us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy. How do you explain someone like Paul, who was putting Christians to death, all of a sudden now being willing to be put to death for saying that Jesus is now alive and reigning? He stood before kings. For example, King Agrippa, and said to him, why is it thought incredible by any of you that God raises the dead? He would talk to paupers and tell them about Jesus and the resurrection. He would talk to philosophers and tell them that he has seen Jesus. He would stand before the kings and proclaim to them the resurrection of Jesus. How do you explain that if Jesus is still dead? So where are you? Some of you may be like what some of those in response to Jesus said. I'm curious. I want to hear more. And if that's where you are, let me encourage you to think on this and to keep going at it because there's nothing more important for you to figure out than as if this thing really happened. Am I back on? All right. As Yuroslav Pelikan, a professor at Yale, once said, if Christ is risen, nothing else matters. And if Christ is not Nothing else matters. Man, I love that quote. (laughs) If Christ is risen, nothing else matters. In other words, that's the most central truth to hang your life upon. But if he's not been risen, eat, drink, and be merry, because tomorrow we die. Maybe you say, I'm ready to repent and believe. If it's true that God has appointed Jesus as the judge of this universe and I'm going to stand before him one day and give an account of my life, I am ready right now to repent and to believe in him. If that's the case, let me just tell you these words from Paul in the book of Romans. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. That phrase being saved simply refers to being brought into a right relationship with God. Sins forgiven. The righteousness of Christ dressing you. Welcome of the embrace of the Father. And so let me encourage you to embrace Jesus this very day. The former governor of Louisiana, Bobby Jindal, once talked about how in his own life he was was convinced that Jesus is who he said he was. And he was watching a film about Jesus. And he said, I don't know why I was struck so hard at that moment. There was nothing fascinating about this particular video. But watching this depiction of an actor playing Jesus on the cross, it just hit me harder than ever I'd ever been hit before. If that was really the Son of God, and he really died for me, then I felt compelled to get on my knees and worship him. My friends, may you feel compelled to get on your knees and worship Jesus. He is the King of kings and Lord of lords, and he accepts people just like you and me. Remember that passage we saw earlier in the book of Isaiah? Let the wicked forsake their way. Even the worst of the worst can find grace and forgiveness at the hands of Jesus.
And so maybe you're at this place where you say, I believe it. (laughs) Yes, I do believe that Jesus rose from the dead. This is the central fact of my existence. My friends, let me just encourage you to continue with that more and more and to go deeper into it and explore all the implications of the resurrection for Jesus. I think one of the, the tough things about living in this world is living at this time in between the times where Jesus has secured this victory and death has no longer any power over him and the time when he will make everything new. We live in this difficult time and we see things in this world that just frustrate us and bring us agony and bring us to tears. Do you remember back in 2015 and during Holy Week in Kenya, some Muslim extremists entered Garissa University with weapons and sought out students who said that they were Christians and killed 147 of them. How do we live with this kind of tension, with this kind of violence? What's interesting on Good Friday of that holy week, the the Anglican Bishop of Kenya issued a statement, and he said this, My dear brothers and sisters, on this Good Friday... We gather in our churches across Kenya in the shadow of a great and terrible evil. People who deal in death have slaughtered 147 people in Garissa, most of them students, and brought wrenching anguish to their families and a deep sadness to our nation. These young people died because they were Kenyans and they were Christians. This attack was a calculated manifestation of evil designed to destroy our nation and our faith. But on this Good Friday, we are reminded that the very worst evil can do is not the last word. Through spite and blatant miscarriage of justice, Jesus died an agonizing death on the cross. But his last words are, it is finished. The cross is not a tragic accident, but the fulfillment of God's purpose to reconcile men and women to himself through the atoning death of his son a reality gloriously confirmed by the resurrection from the dead. Do you hear what he's saying? Because of the resurrection of Jesus, death does not have the final word. Yes, it seems like we live in a world of Fridays, Good Fridays, where evil wins. But that's not the end of the story. For those of us who trust in Christ and embrace the fact of his resurrection, there's still more to that story. Let me finish with this quote by N.T. Wright in his book, Following Jesus. He says, without Easter, Calvary, that is the place where Jesus was crucified, Calvary was just another political execution of a failed Messiah. Without Easter, the world is trapped between the shoulder shrug of the cynic, the fantasy of the escapist, and the tanks of the tyrant. Without Easter, there is no reason to suppose that good will triumph over evil that love will win over hatred, that life will win over death. But with Easter, we have hope. Because hope depends on love, and love has become human, and has died, and is now alive forevermore, and holds the keys of death in Hades. It is because of him, Wright says, that we know, we don't just hope, we know that God will wipe away all tears from our eyes. And in that knowledge, we find ourselves to be Sunday people called to live in a world of Fridays. In that knowledge, we know ourselves to be Easter people 
called to minister to a world full of Calvaries. In that knowledge, we find that the hand that dries our tears passes the cloth to us and bids us follow him to go to dry one another's tears. My friends, the good news of Jesus Christ is that he has risen from the dead and has conquered death. And his own resurrection is the down payment of what God is going to do for this entire cosmos. And just like Jesus went through death and resurrection, this universe will go through a death and resurrection, what Jesus called the renewal of all things. And there will be a new heavens and a new earth where there will be no more tears and no more death and no more suffering. My friends, if you believe in Jesus, that is your inheritance. And that is worth anchoring your soul upon.